So, have you come up with your million dollar idea yet? Absolutely. What's it going to be? It's an app that places Zach Galifianakis in any picture that you upload. Should I know who that is? I feel like you should. I really, I, there are so many things that I feel like I should know and I just don't know. I who think is he's from, this guy? He's from, he's a comedian. He was in like the, you ever heard the kids talk about the Hangover movies? Oh yeah, that guy. See the, the fat guy with the beard? Yeah, and he's from Watauga County. His, his uh, dad or grandfather was a North Carolina State Senator. What? So yeah. he's a hometown guy. Yeah. My he went to NC State. That's hilarious. <laughs> you never quite know who's going to end up at NC State. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to What's the Res, an ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. My name is Josh Herring. I'm a debate coach and humanities instructor at Thales Academy in Rollsville, North Carolina. My guest this episode is Tyler Bonin, instructor of economics at Thales Rollsville and adjunct professor of economics at the College at Southeastern in Wake Forest, North Carolina. We here at Thales are getting ready for the Coolidge Cup Tournament in July, hosted by the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. I'm really excited to announce that at my campus, we had five students qualify. At our cross-town campus in Apex, we had four students qualify. So we've got a grand total of nine Thales students who are going to compete this year. And Tyler is going to help us with some of his economics expertise. Tyler, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I, I don't know if you've uh, listened to many of our episodes or not, but I think Ethan and I usually manage to reference you either implicitly or explicitly <laughs> once every other show, I think. <laughs> there, there's enough things that happen. Well, our resolution today is resolved. The United States federal government should adopt a policy of unilateral free trade. Well, Tyler, as an economics uh, professor, what, what do you see in this resolution? So I think there's a lot of uh, different variables in this resolution. Uh, but everything really does hinge on recent developments in uh, U.S. federal policy under President Trump in terms of these uh, continuing tariffs placed on uh, both the EU uh, and China as well. But more specifically, China, um, as you know, there's a lot of discussion about retaliatory tariffs and a long road that could take us. And I think that this is really the, the focus of this resolution. So this really has something to do with the EU. I haven't followed what's going on with the EU. Have we have we had tariffs against the EU? Are they putting tariffs against the United States economy? What, what's going on with the European Union? Yes, yeah, so uh, previously the Trump administration had enacted uh, tariffs against the EU um, on various products, various goods coming in, uh, with the European Union coming back and, and offering a stance of retaliatory tariffs. At one point, I think... Um, they noted uh, placing a uh, tariff against uh, U.S. bourbon, <laughs> particularly because that's where Mitch McConnell's from. And so he had expressed uh, his backing of that type of situation. So I thought that was pretty interesting. But more recently, it's been a lot of focus on China. Okay, so these tariffs can be more focused. It, it's not just a broad scattershot, all goods from this country. They can even be made so specific as to affect just Kentucky bourbon. Correct, correct, that's right. Um, so in the instance of uh, the European Union, um, President Trump has come forward and has looked at the automotive sector. Um, Germany is the European Union's largest economy, uh, and we are a major buyer of automobiles from Germany in terms of uh, Audi, BMW, Mercedes-Benz. So we're a huge market for uh, a very large sector of the German economy. So if tariffs increase, uh, you could see that hurt Germany in a major way. 
Fascinating. Well, let's back this up just a little bit because I, I suspect some of our listeners may be a bit more like me and they, they don't know as much about economics. I mean, I, I know that economics is important and I, the older I get, the more I feel the lack of my own economics education. So I want to ask some basic questions in hopes that, that that'll help everybody be on a common page. So uh, back us all the way up to how international trade actually works. Can I, as an American citizen, just decide to trade with another country? Does my government need to have an agreement with their government? How, how does international trade really work? So if we're going to go back, I would say that we would start with the law of comparative advantage. Uh, this term was coined by David Ricardo in the early 19th century, and that refers to a concept in which a country should focus on what it's good at and trade with other countries focused on producing what they're good at. So while a country may have an absolute advantage across all goods, it might be more efficient at producing some goods and others. And so in order to produce uh, an increased total output, all countries should stick to focusing on what they're good at producing and trade with others. That will increase total output. Now, um, international trade agreements have had their varying stages throughout history. Uh, the main thing that we think of in terms of protecting our industries in the United States are tariffs, which is simply a tax placed on any goods that are imported. And these can be very specific. It can be uh, a single good, uh, it could be different services, and then in addition to that, you have a quota system, which is just simply a limit, oftentimes is an arbitrary limit, mm. on the number of uh, X type of goods that can come into this country. So I, that, that comparative advantage idea is fascinating. So I know there are, I, I, if I remember correctly, the United States is currently a global leader in technology uh, businesses, I guess. I mean, we have, we have the top five technology firms in, this, in the world based in the United States. But we're, I don't think we're nearly as good at making, say, for example, really high-level wines. Even though there are lots of California wineries that are trying to get there, would it, would it be an example of comparative advantage to say that, say, France or Italy would really focus on cultivating their wine industries and really the United States focus on their technology sector and then both trade with each other for those various goods that they're not as good at? Is that, is that what you're describing? Absolutely. I think that um, it depends on the good or service that you're discussing, but that's what it ultimately comes down to. Who is more efficient at producing what? So again, while maybe the United States has resources to produce a total number of wine bottles and tech services above that that France can, if France is more efficient at producing wine than we are, we will expend less resources. Thus, it behooves both countries to engage in trade because each country benefits. It's the idea of um, mutual benefit of trade. Okay. And is, that, is this another place where Adam Smith's idea of the invisible hand comes in? Because I... I'm assuming there's there's no secret group of uh, international businessmen who are sitting down thinking, well, hey, Bill, what are you good at? I'm good at oil. Tom, what are you good at? Oh, I'm really good at making cars. But instead, this sort of just happens, or is there some sort of intentional planned manipulation of resources that makes the system work? No, I mean, if, if I were to... To, to look at it uh, from today's angle, I would say it's definitely this notion of spontaneous coordination, uh, which falls in line with Adam Smith's uh, invisible hand. Um, and also, there's some other elements to it, uh, such as geography, right? I mean, anytime you go to the grocery store, say you just feel the need to buy some tropical fruit. Maybe you want a papaya with your ice cream tonight. <laughs> it is possible for you to gain that papaya 
through trade and geography matters. We don't really grow papayas that much in the United States, maybe down in Florida, in the state of Hawaii, but other countries produce very many papayas, and thus we have access to that fruit if we so choose. Fascinating. So, well, how about the, the role of government then? I mean, does, does, does government have a role in crafting policy here? Is that, is that part of the governmental mandate? Um, well, government does engage in regulating trade, but I think there's many uh, economists out there, uh, many proponents of free trade that say that the government should not have any role in it. Um, I think that when the government does have a hand in free trade, um, these are usually through trade agreements such as NAFTA, um, and sometimes they will still include tariffs. They will still include restrictions and regulation on trade. So even though they're free trade agreements, they're not actually free trade agreements. That's fascinating. Well, talk to us about the current U.S. economic policy in regards to economic trade. Our, our resolution is asked, saying we should adopt a policy of unilateral free trade. Well, what, what's the status quo? Do we have free trade across all vectors, or do we have some, are, are we kind of like a mixed economy where we have free trade with some countries and not with others? How, how does, what's the status quo on our international trade? Um, so... Under the Obama administration, there was a Trans-Pacific Partnership, of course. Uh, before that, uh, under George H.W. Bush, uh, there was a development of NAFTA, which I believe was signed into law under President it's Bill Clinton. The North American Free Trade Association, is that Agreement, right? Agreement, yes. Agreement. North American Free Trade Agreement, okay. That's right, and that's the it's a trilateral, I suppose you call it, between Canada, United States, and Mexico. Of course, um, Canada and United States at the time that the agreement was entered into they're, both of these countries had a much higher level of development. So um, part of that was to bring um, Mexico into, uh, into trade with the United States at a much higher level, and that was also to help Mexico with development. Um, of course, on the other side of the pond, you have uh, the UKIP movement, the United Kingdom Independence uh, Party, which uh, seeks to, um, of course, remove itself from the European Union and also enter into unilateral free trade. But um, we have varying levels of, uh, of tariffs. Right now, we're at a very high level under the Trump administration with a 25% tariff on, I think it's at this point, $250 billion worth of Chinese goods. That is a staggering number. $250 billion, you said, with a B? Yeah, with a B, $250 billion, And I think, if I'm correct, it's supposed to move up to... Um, about $300 billion worth of Chinese goods. I think several of the articles I've been reading to help my students prepare for this resolution have talked about the move from a 10% tariff to a 25% tariff. That seems like a pretty steep jump. No, that's a, that's a huge jump. Um, when, when President Trump first enacted steel tariffs, of course, the, the steel lobby was all for it, right? Because this is going to bolster their bottom line immensely. Um, you were bringing in inexpensive, cheaper steel. Now, all of a sudden, that steel is much more expensive than domestic steel, but overall costs have increased. Mm, okay. Because now you're paying for domestic steel, which is cheaper than the alternative, which is that tariffed steel, but it's still more expensive than what you were paying before. So while the steel industry was all for that, uh, you have many other manufacturers that were against it and ultimately would hurt, you know, hurt the consumer in terms of housing, steel that's used for housing, even uh, craft beer sector because the fact that kegs are made from steel. That's fascinating. Well, uh, Tyler, help us with the, the, the particular meaning of this phrase, unilateral free trade. I was, I, I'm not entirely sure I'm confident about what unilateral means here. What, what, what do you see in that term, this unilateral free trade? 
So unilateral free trade will just refer to a country having no restrictions on trade, regardless of reciprocity agreements with other countries. So for instance, a free trade agreement such as NAFTA or previously with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, those, those were bilateral, um, or excuse me, multilateral trade agreements. A unilateral free trade agreement simply states we will not place any tariff quota or non-tariff barrier on any good coming into the United States, regardless if those countries exporting their goods have tariffs against U.S. goods. So then that means that regardless of whether, so it really doesn't matter what the other country does then. Now, does that then constitute, I know this is not a strictly economic question, but this is at least where my mind goes with it. Does that then constitute any kind of endorsement of the, uh, the moral status of a trading partner? I mean, I'm thinking of countries like Saudi Arabia, which, of course, we are big economic partners with. But to go with China, which uh, in the last year I keep seeing different human rights violations that the Chinese government is doing, particularly against Christians and Muslims within their borders. Does that then say no matter what country you are or what you're doing, we will trade with you completely free, no penalty, whatever? Is that is that part of that unilateral free trade? Um, in a, at a base level, at a strict level, I would say yes. Um, no restrictions based on, on anything at all. And, um, and that's, that's really the problem that we come to here because of the fact that a lot of talk is focused on not necessarily free trade, but if you notice, you hear this term fair trade come up quite a bit, mm. especially as uh, President Trump has said it, that you know, he, he refers to these other countries as not playing, playing fairly, that they're doing whatever they need to in order to gain an advantage, uh, and, and we're the losers for it because we have a major trade imbalance right now. So that's what it comes down to uh, for many people who advocate for tariffs is that many countries aren't playing fair, so we should play hardball. Interesting. Can, can you walk us through the meaning of that term trade imbalance and, and, really, and why, is that a problem? And if so, why? Um, so I think it depends on who you talk with in terms of whether or not I think economists really disagree on this notion. It's sort of a, a loaded word. You have what's called a trade deficit in the United States right now, which means that we import much more than we export. Um, some economists think that this is bad. Other economists don't think it's so so bad. Uh, it helps consumers in the United States with what they're able to, to buy. Um, so part of GDP is net exports, which is simply the uh, imports, uh, the um, exports, excuse me, um, subtracted from imports. I think, again, it goes back to, to, to who you speak with, but um, the consumer is not worse off because we have a trade imbalance. Okay. But there, is there some sense in which a country might be worse off as a whole, or what, where, where's the negative side on that? I mean, what, why are there why are there plenty of economists who would say, "Oh my goodness, we have a trade imbalance. This is a terrible thing." Why? why what's the what's their argument? Um, so there is an argument that it ultimately will lead to well several things, um, especially um, when it comes to manufacturing. Um, we are we are exporting less manufactured goods. Um, we're importing everything right now. So ultimately what that harms is domestic industry. So for a very long time, the manufacturing sector in this country has essentially been disappearing. Um, a lot of manufacturing has moved offshore. Obviously the Chinese have really grown their manufacturing sector. So in terms of jobs, and that's what it comes down to, 
Are jobs lost? Absolutely, they're lost. When we start importing goods, manufactured goods from overseas, that harms the domestic industry. Factories start shuttering their doors. Factories will move. And ultimately, Americans in our context are put out of jobs. And yet, at the same time, as the consumer, I can go to Walmart and find a gadget for $2.99 that 10 years ago might have been $14.99. And if I'm understanding correctly, part of the price drop is this trade imbalance that also may have a price tag of addition of costing American jobs. Correct. Okay. Now, that, that, is, that is really interesting. Well, help us with some of the potential benefits. Um, are there any benefits to a unilateral tr free trade position? Absolutely. I think when it comes to the consumer, um, there is a lot of benefits in terms of what you're able to, to buy. Um, the reason why Chinese goods are so attractive in, in this country is because uh, they're inexpensive. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of talk about trying to bring manufacturing back to the United States. Well, we're much, much further along than that. Um, any manufacturing that comes back to the United States, to the, comes back to the United States, will not be performed by humans, but rather automation, right? So when it comes to unilateral free trade agreements, we have more. When we think about wealth, what it means to be wealthy, it simply means having access to goods and services that make our life better. So that's the difference, as you said before, between paying $12 for a toothbrush or paying $3.99 for a toothbrush. That frees up incomes, or frees up our income so that we can do other things, enjoy other things. It's not all going towards one place. So it almost seems like understanding the perspective that you just laid out for us requires a shift in mindset. This is not about necessarily reopening the factory at the center of the town that used to be the lifeblood of the town. But we almost have to get into this kind of new framework of thing. okay, I've got to think about wealth differently than two generations ago Americans thought about wealth. Absolutely. It, it reminds me of a, a book I read last summer uh, by Jay Richards about the, uh, the uh, he, he was, uh, he's an economist at um, uh, Catholic University of America. And he, was, he was looking at a lot of the fears people have about the coming robotic revolution or a robopocalypse as <laughs> some of the more uh, poetic uh, terrorizers on the internet might put it. But uh, he was arguing that really it's not that, he argues, yes, of course, it's obviously true, jobs will be diminished because robots are replacing them. But he argues that's actually not a terrible thing. And it's also not completely unique because we've always had jobs that change. Uh, there's been a lot of talk in recent years about the idea of creative destruction or market disruption. All of those moments create new job opportunities. All right, so I wonder if this too, that comes into this discussion as well, because as we're moving in this more, if we move in the, on the affirmative side on a more unilateral free trade direction, we're really looking at these different ways of creating wealth rather than the tried and true, I open a factory, I make things, I sell things, and I try to sell things with the highest rate possible. Maybe instead this looks like I might make less actual profit, but my actual profit goes further because the overall cost of goods is decreasing. Is that, is that right? Right, right. And, and to get back to your earlier point, too, I mean, yeah, jobs lost is, is, is a terrible thing, especially in the short run. Um, nobody likes to have a situation of unemployment. Uh, but there are many jobs that don't exist anymore. Uh, telephone operators don't exist anymore. Um, in the industri during the Industrial Revolution, it was a job to go around and, and tap on windows and wake people up. Uh, <laughs> nobody laments the loss of the window knocker because we have an alarm clock now. I mean, these structural changes 
happen, but they happen over time. The fact of the matter is, I don't want to pay that guy, but I, <laughs> there are some days I'd love to have someone like ring my doorbell to make sure I wake up if it's been a really long night. <laughs> but it's true, we have access to goods and services that that make our life better. Well, are there are there any harms in this position? And particularly, I am I, I'm at least a little bit partial to President Trump's rhetoric of saying. If we play fair, but the other side doesn't play fair, that really does hurt our position. Does it hurt us if we are approaching, say, China or Russia and a position of unilateral free trade, but they're not letting us trade freely with them? What if they put tariffs on our goods coming in? Right, and that's, and that's what's basically happening with retaliatory tariffs. One thing I did want to mention, I think, is that um, with President Trump's uh, his numbers, he talks about the, the trade imbalance. Now, uh, when he's referring to U.S. exports, he's only looking at exported goods. He's not actually looking at exported services as well. Oh, interesting. Right. He's only looking at manufactured goods, these tangible goods, you know, widgets or whatnot. So he's not factoring into services that we export to China. Um, and that's the natural progression of any economies to go from manufacturing to a service-based economy, which is what we have. And those are such things as, you know, this burgeoning tech se sector that we have mm -hmm. had over the years with things like cloud, cloud computing and, and whatnot. So these are things that are within the service sector that we also export, but which aren't included in his numbers. Um, yeah, there's something to be said, I guess, about the, the, the fair play um, in China keeps its exports of manufactured goods high because it does manipulate its currency. So so when it comes to this situation, that is not something that we cannot ever overcome as long as China continues to, exp uh, continues to manipulate its currency. Um, there's also the situation you talked about before when it comes to human rights abuses, that maybe this needs to be factored in, the moral aspect of do we want to trade with a country that is performing these abuses in terms of imprisoning uh, political prisoners or whatnot. Um, is this something that we want to do? I think it's a live question, and it's certainly part of the uh, apparatus of the international of the current global world order that the main countries in the world have the ability to place economic sanctions on countries that have a lower view of human rights or a non-existent view of human rights. I'd put Iran in that kind of category. Uh, I'd certainly put uh, currently China. Um, at times, Russia has been in that same category. Uh, I mean, it, it it sort of froze up the UN Security Council for about. 40 years or so during the Cold War, as both the United States and Russia kept canceling each other's powers on the UN security out. Uh, but at the, this does seem to, that, that seems to be an interesting argument, I think, that, that certainly uh, Neg could argue, if we really embrace unilateral free trade, we surrender a bit of moral leadership in, in the global economy. Absolutely. Uh, okay, well, and now, our, help us with some of the. I know you've done a lot of reading on the in the Austrian school, and I, I know other uh, philosophical, or not philosophical, but more economic voices. What are some of the major economic theorists that people might want to draw on for coming up with their cases and their arguments? Well, I think from the Austrian school, uh, it would be excellent to, of course, draw upon Hayek. Um, a great quote, and I'm horrible with quotes, but. Um, he noted, uh, every philosophy of mercantilism is a philosophy of a gun stuck in the belly of another American. <laughs> every mercantilist idea is a defense of gun in the belly economics. And so when you're drawing on the Austrian school, which really does uh, put forward these ideals of classical liberal, liberalism um, that 
we should have limited government interference in the markets, that it's about individual liberty. Tariffs fly in the face of that. Um, and this is voluntary association that we're talking about, which is a pinnacle of individualism. However, it is the federal government literally saying you cannot <laughs> associate with people at will. If you do so, you'll be economically fined for that in the form of a tariff. I hadn't thought about it quite in that way. This is a this is part of that American principle of association because that that association is so critical to our identity as American people. I mean that's that's ultimate that's a huge part of our uh, revolutionary generation and the idea that we as Americans have associated in all of these private groups and even our own colonial governments that we're quite capable of running without British help. Thank you very much. Kind of seems to run through that 1760s, 1770s uh, dialogue. Uh, so that, that's really interesting that this whole idea of regulating it is interfering in a sort of natural association. Right, absolutely. Um, Keynes, on the other hand, had advocated free trade, but in practice he had actually supported uh, tariffs in uh, Britain, uh, I believe in the 1930s. And there's also this concept of uh, protecting infant industries. And so there's been a lot of literature written um, that I've been following lately on the Japanese automotive sector. Uh, mm. Post-World War II, um, they were trying to develop their automotive sector, which today is very successful. Just look at the parking lot. You'll just see a ton of Hondas and Toyotas. I'm a proud, uh, I think I'm on my third Toyota vehicle, <laughs> and my dad is probably on number 12 or something. We're, we're a Toyota family in terms of our cars. They last forever. They, they do, they do. I'm a big fan of Japanese automobiles. Um, a series of tariffs were enacted in order to protect this infant industry, the, the logic being, well, you know, free trade is fine and all, but we will never get off the ground until we achieve that economy of scale, until we build up and refine our product, then we can compete with the, the big American automakers. And so the Japanese had enacted tariffs and other protective measures in order to get that automotive industry off the ground at a place where it could feasibly compete with the, the big automotive, uh, U.S. automotive uh, manufacturers such as GM and Ford and whatnot. Did they take those tariffs away when Toyota and Nissan and Honda and so on, when they got big enough, or did those tariffs remain? No, they, they ended up taking the tariffs off. I'm, I'm pretty sure about that. I have to look back over it again. But after they were able to grow to a certain point, then they started to remove those protective measures. Well, that, that fascinates me because it's so, it's so rare that uh, th those sort of plans actually end up being followed by removing the, the law that was put in place to govern it for a time. I, in an American context, I would be really surprised if that kind of tariff was actually taken off after 5, 10, 15, or 20 years, whatever the time frame was established over that industry. Absolutely, and I think um, that's probably drawing to some cultural influence there. I think uh, there's this uh, collective idea of a you know collective goal uh, mm. within Japan that you just would never see in the United States just based on the precepts we were founded on. Interesting, which which may point to the fact that, uh, so in this case, in our resolution, that, that may mean that folks debating this need to pay particular attention to the American character, uh, since our resolution is looking at what the U.S. federal government should do, and need to note that there are uh, the tariffs may be a re more reasonable policy in some sections of the world, given a different national flavor, than they would be in an American context, as we're very, we're very volatile, independent people, I, I think. Absolutely, without a doubt. 
Well, uh, let, let's. You, you began initially talking about China, and I apologize for doing that rather rude host thing, <laughs> steering us onto a different topic. But I want to come back to China. I know over the last couple of days we've talked quite a bit about about China, uh, but help us with some of the story about what's been going on. I know it's tied to President Trump, but I don't entirely know. I'm not yet clear on why did President Trump focus on China. Was it? Is he the only one to really see this as a problem? Has this been a long-standing con- point of conflict between U.S. and China? What's going on with U.S.-China trade relations? So it has been an issue for quite some time. Um, There's actually just a Wall Street Journal uh, article out earlier uh, stating that the Treasury would not list uh, China as a currency manipulator, although in the past it's always been pointed to China as uh, as being a country that very much does manipulate its currency. Um, And for a long time it's been known that China does that in order to spur its export market. China keeps its currency down at an artificial level, or it has in the past, just in order to make its goods more attractive um, to outside markets. Um, if you can get more yuan for the dollar, you open up yourself to many more Chinese goods than you could domestic goods, you're going to start importing more goods because they're, they're cheaper, because yuan is, is valued much lower. But China has taken many efforts in order to keep this currency down to an artificial level. It's devalued its own currency. It's called a fixed exchange rate versus the United States, which has a floating uh, exchange rate. It's just based on supply and demand of the currency. Values go up, values go down. China very much takes a centralized control of its currency by buying and selling its own yuan in order to main, maintain its currency exchange rate at an artificial level, mm, Okay. which is low. And that's something they've been doing for years then? Yeah, they've been doing it for years. They've, uh, they've had it pegged to the US dollar. Um, so China's held a lot of uh, U.S. dollars on reserve so that it can buy and sell its, its currency in order to, if there's a surplus of Chinese yuan, it can buy up those Chinese yuan to start to bring those levels back down um, to where they need to be. Um, it's been doing it for years. Recently, though, it's been it's eased up a little bit. So instead of having the Chinese yuan pegged to the U.S. dollar, it's actually uh, pegging it to an international basket of currencies, including the euro and other things. Okay. So China has been playing with the value of their currency and artificially suppressing that to attract, uh, to make it cheaper for them to export goods. And then, so President Trump then puts on, he, he can he, does, did he have to get congressional approval or did he just put a tariff on? How, how does that work? So from my understanding, and this is something I probably should read up a bit more, um, this, like other congressional powers, <laughs> has sort of been given to the executive. Okay. So uh, in, in previous years, you know, going back um, before JFK, Congress would take action. It would be a congressional move, not an executive move. But um, like so many other congressional powers, okay. <laughs> it, it just hands them over to the executive. Uh, starting with JFK and beyond, the executive has done more uh, in terms of uh, implementing tariffs unilaterally. Okay, so then the, so the president puts tariffs on. China then responds with counter tariffs. Uh, is what, what's the potential fallout? I mean, if this if this continues going in its current trajectory, what's the result? Well, in the in the short run, um, I don't think that there will be much fallout just because of the fact that inventories exist. 
But as we start moving forward, uh, there will definitely be uh, an increased cost to the U.S. consumer. I challenge anybody to go and look through their house, pick up any appliance, <laughs> look at your shirts, look at the tags on your shirts, heck, look at your furniture, and look for a made-in-China tag. You'll be hard-pressed to find something that wasn't made in China. If the tariffs increase costs, that will be passed on to the consumer. That's a really real aspect that... Um, you could see an 800% increase. I mean, this would be almost like a tax on your household at the end of the year. When you consider that everything you go out to the grocery store to buy, you know, toothbrushes, uh, toothpaste, you know, whatnots, um, if the cost of all those go up to control for increased costs because of tariffs, you're going to eat that cost. You know, in your household, you're going to see those prices go up. So I'm sure companies will be clever in hiding some of that from the consumer. But if you're if you're right, then we're talking about a 25% increase on shoes, a lot of clothing, uh, a lot of high-priced electronics already, uh, probably a lot of comp components that are then that are manufactured in China and then shipped to other places that are going to show up in automobiles and all kinds of other things. Uh, we were already talking. You were talking earlier about an increased price of steel. So we're looking at a rising cost. Uh, is it worth it? I mean, is is this worth it to then kind of stick it to China and and stick it to them for this potential currency manipulation, which for some reason, from what you've said, seems to exist, but the Treasury Department is not willing to actually call currency manipulation. Right, right, and and that's the thing that it comes down to is whether or not it, it truly is worth it. If if this is a, a showdown, right? This is a, like a Wild West showdown <laughs> in which we implement tariffs. They're retaliatory tariffs. It's high noon. <laughs> Somebody's going to go down, and President Trump is is hoping that China will back down and and start to play more fair, right? And he's looking out for again the manufacturing sector. But at the end of the day, it's going to probably hurt a lot of Americans in a very real manner because it's going to hurt their pocketbook. It's going to hurt the bottom line. In essence, when you start increasing the price of goods, everyday goods that we buy, that's going to that's going to be a major tax on American families. Well, that's going to be really interesting because one of the things that President Trump rode to the White House was his promise that he was there, he was going to be helping the uh, fading middle class of America. And if you're right, and this this ends up costing that very group more money. He, well, is this going to happen fast enough to really affect the next election cycle, or is this something that would be over the next 10 to 20 years? What, what's the time frame on, on this? Um, again, I think it's going to depend on, on what exactly is that you're, you're looking at. So uh, um, over $200 billion worth of goods, it, it all depends on inventories that are held in the United States right now. But, yeah, some things, it, it could affect you pretty quickly. I think I was also reading, um, here, let me ask you this question. Um, maybe I asked you already. Uh, China produces 97% of this good in the world. If you ask me, I don't remember what it is. And I want to say Beanie Babies, but I'm pretty sure that's wrong. <laughs> uh, fireworks. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We so, did talk about this earlier. <laughs> um, you know, we're coming up on Independence Day. It's, you know, when we're driving back up from Orlando the other day, we yep. passed by south of the border. Very big. <laughs> very yep. big. And we kept on driving. <laughs> kept on driving. But a lot of people stopped to buy fireworks. Um, China, I believe, produces 97% of the world's fireworks. So while that won't hurt this year, it will hurt down the road. Mm, As these okay. inventories are depleted, people will look to Independence Day fireworks next year and see a huge price. Now, fireworks aren't essential to life, but you can see how this 
over the next year or two will definitely start affecting more Americans when they go into the grocery store, the, the shoe store, the clothing store, and wow, you know, they get that, that sticker shock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Tyler, that is absolutely fascinating, really helpful. Uh, let me ask you a couple advice questions and we'll kind of wrap this episode up for the day. So what advice would you give to students who are arguing the affirmative of the United States federal government should adopt a policy of unilateral free trade? So aside from the, the benefit to American consumers that we've talked about, I think there's also this idea of the appeal of free trade in that, you know, to be an example to the rest of the world, that many countries will seek to protect domestic industries by um, implementing tariffs but, and other protective measures, but we can be an example to the world by engaging in unilateral free trade. Um, you were not going to coerce anybody else. All that's going to lead to is a trade war. Mm, okay. We can s simply lead by example in that case. And there's definitely a lot of merit to that example. Interesting. Well, and of course, we're a debate podcast, so we can't always just be on one side. I know you much prefer the, uh, the free trade side of this discussion, but what advice would you give to the negative side who have to figure out why we should not adopt a policy of unilateral free trade? Um, so things that we've talked about before, a big one would be uh, human rights abuses. While it's good that we get our widgets, that we get <laughs> get our nice, new, clean Nike shoes, well, we also have to look at um, sort of the moral side of that. You know, are we uh, are going to allow these goods to come in from countries where these uh, vagrant, um, these flagrant uh, human rights abuses occur? Um, also, I would say looking at historical case studies, such as example with Japan, the fact that, yeah, we can have this ideal of free market trade, but let's take a look at history and see, you know, what, what countries did to foster economic development to a point where they can engage in true free trade. So there's, there's that ideal of free trade in those instances, and then there's also the realist case. Well, that's really interesting because this may be a place of the affirmative is arguing for a more of a theoretical ideal and a neg is going to maybe have ground to then come back and say, honestly, that ideal is great, but we don't live in an ideal world. We live in this world. And in this world, unilateral free trade is an impossible principle to follow. Well, uh, Tyler, thank you so much for coming on our show today. Uh, where can our audience find you online? Is there any writing you want to suggest people check out? Can they find you on Twitter, or on Facebook? Do you have a website, a, a book you've been working on in secret that I haven't heard much about? <laughs> how, how can our audience find out more about your work? Well, I'm on Twitter occasionally, and that's uh, at Tyler M. Bonin. Um, and also, I do have a website with some of my previous writings on issues such as national debt and education, and that's at uh, tylerbonin.weebly.com. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to another episode of What's the Res? My name is Josh Herring. My guest this episode has been Tyler Bonin. If you like what you've heard, then help us out by going over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. That's the best way to help other people find our podcast. If you want to email us, you can do that at whatstherez at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at whatstherez underscore. Last thing, do be on the lookout for a major show announcement later this summer. We've got some great stuff developing here at What's the Res that I can't wait to share with you, uh, but I can't announce that today. Do be on the lookout for that announcement. Until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek truth. <laughs>